It's Friday, April 20th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. The tools for detecting and measuring methane emissions from oil and gas production have come a long way. Not that long ago, you had to rely on your eyes, ears, and nose to find a leaky valve or seal. Then infrared imaging came along, making it possible to visualize emissions. Now, laser technology is making measurement more precise and efficient, and it's being deployed in all kinds of novel ways helicopters, drones, robots, and so on. But the science of detecting and measuring methane emissions is about to take another huge leap forward. Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, is building its own methane detection satellite. And it will sit in orbit and basically be able to give you a picture of 80% of oil and gas facilities worldwide every seven days. And that means companies, regulators, researchers, and the public will soon have access to a massive trove of methane data that EDF says will be a powerful weapon in the fight against climate change. We'll learn more about the project coming up. First, the State House of Representatives is considering legislation that would set the agenda for Pennsylvania's adoption of electric vehicles. The Clean Transportation Infrastructure Act is up for a vote this spring. For more on the bill and on the challenges Pennsylvania faces in transitioning to EVs, let's bring in PEC's energy and climate policy advisor, Alyssa Berger. Alyssa, welcome. Thank you. You came here pretty recently from the West Coast, and you've also uh, been working in D.C. at the national level. What's the bigger national context? What's the, the shift towards electric vehicles looking like on the broad stage? And then where does Pennsylvania uh, fit in there? How do we compare with what's happening in other parts of the country? That's a great question, Josh. So I think really there are, there are two things at play when we talk about electric vehicles sort of nationally, and those are you know, decarbonization when we look at the Paris Accord or climate agreements and, and targets that we need to hit, where are we and where do we need to go, and then also sort of the rapidly evolving technological infrastructure space. So on the, on the climate piece, you know, the built environment is very important to address energy efficiency as well as, you know, how are we generating electricity? Is that coming from clean sources? But then there's also the transportation sector. So we really have to decrease our petroleum use um, and increase our um, electrified energy use because we can then power from clean energy. So really the ideal would be, you know, you have your electric vehicle, you can charge it, and then that energy is also coming from solar, wind, etc. Um, and then on the technology piece, you know, we're really seeing market participants who are not necessarily clean energy enthusiasts get into the clean energy space because it's becoming such a dynamic space. You can make money, um, you can patent things. It's really an exciting time. So I think that's why we see someone like Elon Musk, um, who, you know, has SpaceX and, and the tunnels and whatever, really kind of want to remain and play in the EV space simply because it's such an interesting piece of technology, right? An electric vehicle can be a grid asset. It can be a battery, so to speak, in your driveway, and it can help the grid on those days where, you know, it's hot out and all the air conditioners are running, etc. So between the decarbonization piece and how rapidly we're able to kind of ideate and get these pieces of technology into vehicles, um, it's really kind of the perfect time for electric vehicles. So that's sort of the national national um, picture, if you will. 
Um, there are states that have been leaders on electric vehicles for a number of years now. California, for example, has an actual electric vehicle roadmap with targets. Um, so Governor Brown just a few months ago upped that target for the state. And then you have states like Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York that offer things like statewide clean vehicle rebate programs. So they're really encouraging the customer when they walk into the dealership lot, like, hey, think about buying an electric vehicle. Um, Pennsylvania has definitely been dabbling in the electric vehicle space for a number of years now. There was a program out of the Department of Energy, this would be going back um, around 2011, 2012, that was looking to strategically place chargers across the state, specifically around the Turnpike. And Pennsylvania was part of um, a kind of a regional collaborative looking at interstates and highways and where charging infrastructure was. So Pennsylvania's been conversant and part of kind of this EV regional picture for a while, but only now are they kind of taking big meaningful steps. So there's a, a piece of legislation in the House HB 1446, um, the Clean Vehicle Transportation Act, or Infrastructure Act, um, that's, that's going to be really exciting, I think, if, if that's able to move forward. And so really with, with this piece of legislation, there are three goals. One would be setting a goal that would expand transportation electrification by at least 50% more than 2030 market projections. And that's something the governor would really be doing. So once this piece of legislation passes, the governor has six months to set a goal. And I'm sure folks will be advising on, on how to set that goal. And then the second thing it does is it says to the utilities and the char charging service providers, hey, you guys need to give us kind of these baby roadmaps, these frameworks as to how you, Duquesne Light or Pico or ChargePoint, are going to plan and implement um, kind of supportive outreach to customers and then the infrastructure moving forward. And the Public Utilities Commission here in Pennsylvania would want to see those plans and mark them with their seal of approval before they move forward. So that kind of planning allows for alignment where different players know, okay, this is what this utility is doing, so maybe we do this so we can be harmonious, et cetera. And then finally, it allows the utilities to recover some amount of their investment costs by um, basically um, from the money that they make from what we call distribution rates, so on your utility bill, um, to get some of that money back. So that incentivizes for the utility to be involved in the electric vehicle space. So that's a lot, but it's HB 1446. PEC will be covering it. We have a great blog post on it and very excited about it. The other thing that's happening is that the Department of Environmental Protection has been initiating kind of a surveying of where are we now um, and, and what would the state like to do on electric vehicle infrastructure. So DEP has been convening a group of which PEC participates on kind of creating a master roadmap for the state on the future of electric vehicles. Um, the draft is publicly available, as well as a few other documents that I'm sure we can post to if we haven't already. But that's also really exciting because it, it signals <clears throat> that we're taking this very seriously, we're planning ahead, um, because when it comes to an electric vehicle, you can have the car, but if you have nowhere to charge it, um, that's problematic. So infrastructure is just as important as the vehicle itself.
I'm glad you mentioned that. I wanted to ask about this sort of chicken and egg situation. Yes. Like, in the, the, the legislation addresses both of those components, but is this like a if you build it, they will come situation? Right. Or do we need people to adopt the, you know, consumers mm-hmm. to buy the cars, you know, en masse first and then go from there? Yes, it's a good question. So everyone likes to point to something known as range anxiety. So will a driver be able to get in his car spontaneously, he or she, and drive around in their electric vehicle and not feel overwhelming panic that somehow they, will, they won't find anywhere to charge it. So here's where we are with that. Um, the market has moved pretty quickly. So you have things like the Chevy Bolt with a B as well as the Volt, a number of other electric vehicle models now available in the United States. And the mileage on these are very impressive, right? You can get in the car and go to the grocery store and it's not even a question because these cars can get many, many miles. So range anxiety is real, but it, in a way it's kind of a more of a mental thing than it is a reality simply because the EVs now can get so much mileage on one battery charge. Um, plus chargers are advancing in their ability to, there are what we call superchargers, where if you were running in to do errands and you were hooked up to a supercharger, it could get your battery pretty well charged just in that short time versus the charger that you're going to have at home that you plug in from your garage will maybe take a few hours or the whole night to charge you back up to 100%. So it's it's a real consideration, but it's becoming less and less and less of a complete inhibitor to buying an electric vehicle. Yeah, so if the if the infrastructure piece is kind of coming together, maybe sooner than some of us had even expected, what remains to be addressed? What are the remaining obstacles to electrification? Yes. So on the customer side, it's really about awareness and education, which I'm sure doesn't come as a surprise, but there are some really creative ways to go about it. So, you know, definitely having a statewide, what I'll term market transformation program is going to make a huge difference. So right now you can get a federal tax credit for buying an electric vehicle. I'm not quite sure when those expire, but I just did my taxes and that was available. So there, those are still available. At a state level, you have a number of states offering a tax credit as well. For example, in California, it's $2,500 um, for buying an electric vehicle. So something that California has done, and I believe Connecticut is looking at this as well, is engaging dealerships. So how can they engage dealerships to become more educated on electric vehicles? Do they know the rebates exist? Like, do they know this? So that when customers come onto the lot and they say, hey, I've heard some stuff about electric vehicles, what do you think? They then can say, well, it'll bring the price down this much. You know, charging is like this in the city. The city's doing whatever on electric vehicles. And so, for example, you know, the city of Philadelphia has put out actually an electric vehicle report sort of speaking to some of these issues. But kind of preparedness um, and being able to engage the customer is is very, very important. And then I think, you know, kind of ongoing working with the utilities, because as I mentioned, an electric vehicle can act as a battery, can act as a grid asset. So you could do some very sophisticated things where, you know, on a very hot, sunny day, you have solars, solar overproducing. People don't use as much energy now necessarily in the middle of the day, but then they come home and they charge in all their electronics. They're watching TV, their Amazon Echoes, like telling them what to do. You know, that's where you could have the car act as storage, and then that can go back on the grid when it's needed at nighttime. 
So there's a lot of interesting things um, in terms of the role of the electric vehicle on the utility grid. And that's why utilities are so interested in this because as customer demand for electrons goes down, utilities continue to think, how can we stay relevant? And being a part of the EV infrastructure game conversation is certainly one of the ways they can remain relevant. Alyssa Berger, thanks for your time. Sure, thank you. You'll find Alyssa's post on HB1446 on our website. It's at peckpa.org. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, packing many times the climate-altering power of carbon dioxide. It's also the primary component in natural gas, which means the production, processing, and distribution of natural gas is a major source of pollution leading to global warming. That's especially true here in Pennsylvania, the nation's second-largest natural gas producer. Substantially lowering emissions from our gas fields would be a notable victory in the fight against climate change, and the State Department of Environmental Protection is currently working to advance that goal through new permitting requirements. Trouble is, we don't have a very good idea of how much methane is actually being released. Currently, the only data to which DEP has access are self-reported by the industry, and they're required only for certain types of operations. And we do go into this subject in some depth on a recent episode from March 9th, Measuring Methane, which you can find on the PEC website. The good news is relatively simple, low-cost interventions can make a big difference if companies and regulators are able to pinpoint where they're needed most. This is why Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, is taking their research on methane emissions to the next level. And as it turns out, the next level is a few hundred miles above the Earth's surface. MethaneSat is a research satellite designed to find and measure methane emissions. Unveiled this week in a TED Talks presentation by EDF President Fred Krupp, the satellite is slated to launch sometime in the next three years. And when that satellite is ready, we'll have a launch party. A literal launch party. So imagine a blue sky day, crowds of people, television cameras, kids staring up toward the sky at a thing that will change their future. What an amazing day that will be. What a big opportunity we have. I can't wait. Thank you. Here to tell us a bit more about the project is Mark Brownstein. He's vice president of the Climate and Energy Program at EDF. Mark, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Well, thank you. Great to be talking with you. Before we can talk about like the really exciting hook of this story, let's back up a little bit and explain why methane is so important from a climate standpoint and why it's so important to have good data about where methane emissions are coming from. Well, uh, many people don't realize that methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas pollutant, uh, over 84 times more powerful over 20 years than carbon dioxide. And in fact, methane drives 25% of the warming that our planet uh, is experiencing today. And close to a third of those man-made methane emissions uh, driving that warming come from the oil and gas industry. Uh, and so uh, an effort to find and fix leaks of methane across the oil and gas industry can pay some fairly dramatic and immediate um, dividends in terms of reducing warming in the short term. 
So let's differentiate between what we know or what we're capable of knowing using existing, you know, ground-based methods and technologies with what the satellite could potentially tell us. I mean, what do we know right now about methane emissions and what can we learn by observing from space that we couldn't see from down here? Well, when we first started looking at this issue a number of years ago, we, we saw that there was a raging debate in the United States about exactly how much methane was coming from the oil and gas industry. So we went out and did a, a set of 16 different field studies, partnering with over 100 academic and research and even uh, institutions and even companies. And what we learned from that field research is that, in fact, uh, emissions actual emissions from the oil and gas industry in the United States are much higher than what's currently being recorded in uh, official government inventories. Uh, and, and so we're now using that data to accomplish, uh, to, to bring attention uh, to this issue uh, with companies and with regulators in an effort to get those emissions reduced. But what we also understand is is that this is ultimately a global global plot problem. Uh, the oil and gas industry, of course, is a global industry, and uh, and when we look at the data that currently exists on global oil and gas methane emissions, we see some of the same problems that we saw with U.S. government data when we first started researching this problem five years ago. So. Uh, the whole purpose of the satellite is to now try to get better data and do it quickly and efficiently, um, and then to use that data to not only raise awareness of this issue globally, but to be able to use it to, to, to figure out where the problem's coming from, and most importantly, what steps can be taken to reduce it. So the, the need for better data is pretty well established by now, and, and you've been working on it for some years. From there, though, to, to let's launch a satellite, let's be the first environmental organization with the space program, that seems like a, a, a bit of a leap. How did that idea originate? What was that like to say, we're going to build a, a satellite and put it in space? Well, you know, here again, sort of necessity is the mother of invention, right? Um, we were able to collect good data. Um, on U.S. oil and gas uh, emissions uh, using relatively traditional means, either visiting sites with detection equipment or outfitting airplanes or helicopters with, uh, with detection equipment. And with that, over a course of several years, we could collect a fairly robust database for the U.S., when we started to think about the global dimensions of this problem, we realized that using these kind of conventional means of collecting data, well, if it took us years in the United States, it might take us decades to replicate those methods globally. So about two and a half years ago, we started to think uh, sort of outside the box. What could we do um, to get better data on a global scale uh, quickly and efficiently? And that's when we uh, came on the idea of doing a satellite. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing here is, is that um, the technology revolution that has put huge amounts of computing power in the palm of our hands, um, that has given us, uh, you know, so much by way of, uh, of communications, that same technology now is making satellites cheaper and more effective 
than they've been in the past. And it now makes it possible for civil society organizations to actually be able to work with the technology, raise the necessary money, and be able to engage in a project like this. So let's talk about the craft itself, how you designed and developed it, uh, what it's actually capable of. In particular, you know, I'm interested in how you're analyzing the data on board the satellite. And you, you can see the whole Earth from up there, or a big chunk of it, but how do you zoom in and pinpoint the spots that you're going to watch, and how, how do you know what's going on there in order to produce data that'll be useful? Well, so basically the way that what we're designing is a satellite that is able to look at sort of a 200 kilometer by 200 kilometer, uh, you know, swath at any given moment in time, and then has about a one kilometer by one kilometer resolution within that swath, right? So think of it as a, you know, think of it as a giant, um, you know, um, you know, widescreen TV. Uh, that's your field of view, and then the sharpness of the picture has to do with the how many pixels fit within that rectangle. So this is a 200 by 200 kilometer field of view with one kilometer by one kilometer kind of pixel. So it's a wide field of view with very fine resolution, and um, it's therefore capable of seeing a, a large region. Um, being able to detect methane across that large region, but be able to do it with enough accuracy that you can actually understand not where those emissions are coming from, whether it's oil and gas facilities or even feedlots or, um, or, or, or landfills, and be able to tell you about the rate of emissions coming from those, uh, from those locations. And it will sit in orbit and basically be able to give you a picture of 80% of oil and gas facilities worldwide every seven days. And I should say, I, I use the term picture. It's not, it's not a camera, right, in the traditional sense. It's not taking pictures like, like you might see on Google Earth, right? It's a sensor that basically is using uh, light, laser technology, to, in order to be able to detect methane and detect methane in fairly small quantities to be able to give us a good robust picture of emissions coming from 80% of global oil and gas facilities every seven days. So essentially you're bouncing a laser off of the, the surface and seeing what comes back and, and measuring, extrapolating that to get a, a reading of how much methane is coming from a particular spot. Is that close? That that's basically it. Although I'm sure that there are there are engineers and physicists at Carnegie Mellon University right now that are just cringing <laughs> at at the simplicity of that description. But yes, yeah, so that that's essentially right. But to your earlier point, right? Um, once you collect this information, the satellite will essentially beam it back down to Earth. It needs to be interpreted through computer algorithms, right? You're going to get a bunch of ones and zeros and uh, designing the algorithm to interpret that data is going to be a second important step in this project. And then the third important step is then turning that data into something that's you know relatively easy to understand to a layperson so that it can be informative um, to government, um, to industry, uh, to citizens, uh, and to academics, right? The whole idea here is, is all the information that we collect from this satellite 
uh, will be uh, publicly available. How do you anticipate that information then being used in, say, a regulatory context, for example? Is this going to have a, you know, an impact on policies that states and national governments develop? Well, uh, what we're already seeing is, is that as governments and companies become more aware of the real impact that oil and gas methane has in driving warming in the near term, we are seeing governments begin to take steps to reduce emissions. Uh, certainly a number of states, Pennsylvania being one of them, are implementing measures to reduce oil and gas methane emissions. Canada has a commitment to reduce their national emissions by 45%, so does Mexico. And so one could imagine using the data from the satellite. Remember, we're going to get a relatively complete picture of what's going on every seven days. You'll be able to track changes over time. And so certainly governments that have policies in place should be able to see uh, changes for the better over time. And companies that have commitments in place. Just yesterday, BP announced a methane reduction commitment uh, ultimately, this data could be helpful in terms of providing assurance um, to BP and people who care about BP uh, that their emissions are going down or staying stable at low levels. Um, so, uh, yeah, this data, I think, is going to be very helpful um, in providing assurance that when companies or countries take steps to reduce emissions, that progress is actually happening. And then, of course, the information that is out there, I think, will also help raise an understanding, uh, you know, that these emissions are there and that um, and, and some understanding as to where they're coming from. So maybe that also provides some impetus for other companies or countries now to take steps to reduce emissions now that they they can see and frankly, everyone can see that there's a real issue. And it's not just oil and gas that's emitting methane into the atmosphere. In fact, some of the other sources, like agricultural sources, landfills, uh, may be even more difficult to measure in some ways. How is the methane satellite going to improve data collection in those areas? Is this going to be a big leap forward in terms of measuring how much methane is coming from, say, agricultural feedlots? Well, first of all, let's be clear, right? I mean, we, we, we have a certain amount of information uh, on global emissions, just like several years ago, we had a certain amount of information on what was going on in the United States, right? There, you know, uh, companies report their emissions to government bodies that in turn report this to the United Nations. So there is a database out there that gives some, you know, gross understanding of, you know, methane emissions, whether it's coming from, you know, uh, oil and gas facilities or, um, or animal feedlots or landfills, right? There is, uh, there is some data out there, but most of it is self-reported and most of it's based on engineering estimates. And again, what we've learned from the field work that we did in the United States is, is that the engineering estimates tend to understate emissions. Uh, sometimes they don't, in those estimates, you don't capture the full range of emitting activities that are going on. And other times, what we find is, is that the engineering methodologies don't account for the fact that equipment in the field, even if it's designed to be low emitting, sometimes malfunctions, sometimes doesn't operate properly and can lead to very large emissions. That's never captured in the, the standard reports. And so our feeling is, is that um, 
the same phenomena that we see in the United States that leads to underreporting of emissions, well, we probably can expect that that's the same case uh, globally. And of course, the satellite will help us figure that out. And as I said, the satellite will also help us figure out whether or not other sources of self-reported emissions, again, you know, landfills or animal feedlots and the like, whether that self-reported data is accurate or whether it understates it or, or not. So when does the satellite actually launch physically into orbit? And then when, how soon will the data begin to come back? Well, um, this, is, this is tricky stuff, right? Uh, we're pushing uh, sensor technology to the limits in order to get that wide field of view with that level of preciseness that I talked about earlier. Um, we certainly are also pushing the computer science and the big data uh, algorithms to their limits in terms of being able to interpret this data. So there's a lot of work that remains to be done to be able to know that uh, we're going to be able to, to deliver on all the design parameters that we have. Uh, and then, of course, you need to, to build the thing. Uh, so we're expecting, uh, you know, we're aiming to have this up in orbit and providing usable data back to us within three years. Um, it's aggressive, but like everything about this project, it's aggressive, but we feel pretty strongly that it's doable. Mark Brownstein with Environmental Defense Fund. Thanks for talking with me today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can find our recent blog post on the methane-detecting satellite being launched by Environmental Defense Fund on our website, pacpa.org. You can also have a look at the artist's rendering of the craft that's up there. And we'll, of course, link you to EDF's announcement and materials in that video from the uh, TED Talks presentation by Fred Krupp, all at techpa.org. There you can find past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies, including uh, several that we have done on the methane issue. Another place you can find all of that content and much more is on the change.com website. And I'll spell that out. It's ch4, numeral 4, nge.com. That is a resource that Peck and our partners have been building over the last year to help educate and inform Pennsylvanians about methane emissions from the oil and gas industry here in our state, what can be done to better understand and control them. Videos, podcast episodes, further reading, all at ch4nge.com, change.com. Pennsylvania Environmental Council is active on Facebook. You can connect with us there, and you can follow us on Twitter at PECPA. And one more time, the website, our home on the Internet, is PECPA.org. And that's it for Pennsylvania Legacies this time. We'll have another episode in two weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Hope you have a great Earth Day weekend, and thanks for listening. <music>